You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey all, have another Art History Babes reboot for you. As you may know, we like to pick some of our older episodes and kind of clean them up a little bit and send them back out to you. This month we are doing our Cubism episodes, part one and two. Please keep in mind that this episode was originally released three years ago on August 22nd, 2016, and our personal feelings on some of the subject matter may have developed and morphed a little bit. Uh, Cough, cough, Picasso. But um, we'll probably do some kind of an update or a Picasso episode sometime in the future to maybe work through some of those issues. But yeah, please enjoy our intro episode to the series of Cubism. The art history Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. I'm Natalie. I'm Jen. And I'm Ginny. And we are the Art History Babes. Yeah, yeah. And today, the Art History Babes are talking about Cubism. Oh, yeah. And we're all back together. <laughs> yeah, we have all oh, four yeah. of us, which is exciting when that happens. It's been a long summer. Some of us are working. Some of us are traveling. Some of us are working on the podcast all the time, a.k.a. Corey. Um, <laughs> it's really cool. Um, and I'm really, really bitter about it. You can jump in whenever you want. Yeah. It's totally I gotta cool. quit my job. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least you're making money. Uh, I'm just living that starving artist life while working on the podcast. Starving art historian. Yeah, that's that's, a a whole nother level. That's that's my life this summer, honestly. But I mean, still been doing some fun stuff, though. We went to Outside Land like two weeks ago. I didn't go. Jen didn't go, unfortunately. Dang it. But Ginny, me, and... Nat all went to Outside Lands and saw some pretty dope performances. There's also some really cool art, a lot of murals and yeah, like... Oh, 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 wait, 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 but we should say what Outside Lands is. Good point. Oh. Outside Lands Music Festival in Golden Gate Park in the San Francisco Bay Area. Beautiful. It is. It's gorgeous. <clears throat> and it was also really nice as far as music festivals go because we had that like chilly bay vibe. Yeah. Didn't have to worry about like overheating and dehydrating. Mm-hmm. Seriously. Mm-hmm. Which was really nice There was actually. only one point where I felt warm and I was like oh god the <laughs> sun's my face. <laughs> That's what happens when you spend too much time in the bay in the summer. Yeah. yeah, and the thing about it, too, is the Bay Area has everything that you could ever want, and it will be at Outside Lands. That's true. Good food. Oh, my God, the food was great. Great food, great alcohol. They had beer lands, wine lands. Wait, they had whole lands yeah. dedicated to alcohol? <laughs> like giant tents. Oh, I'm so mad that Was I didn't it you know. that made the comparison in the wine tent to like Harry Potter when they're in the wizarding tournament and they had those tents? It wasn't me, but that is exactly what it yeah, was. Yeah, like. and it's like these colorful, striped, like yeah. beautiful tents. Winelands is classy as fuck. Oh. It is super classy. Like I said, there was some really cool art there. If you follow us on Instagram, I posted some of it on our little like Insta snap because Instagram's trying to be Snapchat now. Which is so it's awkward. We have mixed feelings about it. We have it. mixed feelings, but we're going to use it. So follow us on Instagram. Yeah. What was your guys' favorite set that you saw? LCD sound system. Oh, For sure. Yeah. LCD sound system was so much fun. They were amazing. Nat? Um, my best that I anticipated was Third Eye Blind because my childhood. Just, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, it was so fun. Such 90s vibes. But that I wasn't expecting, I really liked Oh Wonder, which is a I love Oh Wonder. They were fantastic. And they're really new. They've only been together for like six months. They were amazing. And they're great. Lastly. Who were the big headliners? Radiohead, which was my favorite. J. Cole. Cole. Chance the Rapper. No, Chance was in the middle of the day. And his fans are 
dicks. Yeah. They're assholes. That Sorry. doesn't surprise Chance, me. Chance, I really, I liked Chance. Yeah, yeah. I was in the middle of the world's douchiest fraternity. I got shoved. Oh, I got, no. It was horrible. <laughs> be horrible. nice to people at music festivals. Please do. To be nice Other to notable sets, Big Grams was fantastic. Oh, I'm jealous. So good. Big Boy from Outcast meets Fantagram. It was dope. They played Miss Jackson. We were like, oh. yeah, we were. Fantagram, I've seen twice. Just Fantagram, yeah, and they're great. Yeah, no, yeah. the the chick from Fantagram is fire. Like she is amazing. Oh my gosh, she's, she's such a, babe. a. There were a lot of badass women this year. For real, Grimes. Grimes killed it. Halsey was like really dope too. You know, Lapsley guys. She's twenty years old. Oh, I I walked by her set. And oh I God. heard it, but I didn't so stop. Bad. And she's, I should have. She's amazing. And she's 20 years old. I was probably trying to find my drunk she had just <laughs> She had just performed at Lollapalooza the weekend before. Damn. Lots of badass ladies. Yeah. Shout out to all of you. You were all amazing and inspiring and wonderful. It was a meeting of goddesses. It really yeah. was. A I lot of goddesses. I wasn't there, but I, I and just feel it. a lot of really visually stimulating sets. Radiohead set was beautiful. I feel like, Nat, you left like before it got really good, I unfortunately. Know. Why? Um, because my friends really it. wanted to go see Zed, right? Yeah. That's what we left for. My friends wanted to see Zed. I'm a big team player at these things. <laughs> I'm, I only um, got to listen to Lionel for like 15 minutes, and I didn't. Lionel Richie? Yeah. I wanted to. Are you kidding? I wanted. I would have danced all night. <laughs> all night. Yeah. No, sing some more. That. I. I How about you? To see forget Lionel. Cubism. Why don't you just sing for us? Today, <laughs> Wait. Was it actually? No. Shut up. Was it really? Are you kidding yes, me? Lionel yes, Lionel Richie was there. Yes. Dude, he's still killing. Like he's still oh, killing the game. We, we stayed for Easy Like Sunday morning, and I was oh, in heaven. Oh, and then we had to leave to go see Lana Del Rey. And Lana puts on a good show too. I saw her at Sasquatch, and she was really great. But was she the last night headliner? No. She doesn't feel, she's, you know, and I was excited because I was thinking back and I don't know that I've ever, and I've got, this was my fourth Outside Lands and I've never, I think, seen a female headliner. So this was, it was cool. I was excited, but it was. She's it was, kind of chill, like, you like sway. downer vibes. Yeah. I would have loved to be dancing to Lionel. You See, could sway. When I saw Lana at Sasquatch, like a storm was coming in and it was like, oh yeah, like her hair was blowing in the wind and it was oh. like really dramatic. It was really cool, actually. Huh. <gasps> that would be. It was good. Yeah. It was a good setting. Let's segue. Let's segue. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure that at Outside Lands, there was a number of people who were experiencing abstract thoughts. <laughs> And I'm sure there were a number of people that thought they were breaking into the fourth dimension. <laughs> that was a that fantastic segment. I think I think it was good. I think it was good. It was yeah, good. And, so too. and you know what? In honor of all of our heroes that um, experienced a break in reality over Outside Lands Many weekend, good. we are going to dive into cubism. That was a beautiful segue. Thank you so much, Thanks, Jen. Thanks, oh, Great connections. Okay, so cubism. Really exciting movement we're talking about today. So if you're not familiar, cubism is considered one of the most influential movements of the 20th century. It's kind of quintessential modernism, modernist movement. Really, any characteristic that you associate with modernism is kind of embodied by cubism. So cubism was kind of this big, like, jumping off point. It's not technically the first modern style, but it was early on. It represents the rejection of tradition that resulted from mass industrialization in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Aesthetically speaking, if you're looking at a cubist painting, like, how do you know you're looking at a cubist painting? Abstraction. Spatial and temporal disorientation, which Jen is going to talk about later with the fourth dimension. Um, showing multiple sides or angles of an object all at once. Like, that is a cubist painting. Geometric overlay of shapes. And a concept that I'm going to talk about quite a bit a little bit later. Primitivism. So these are all different characteristics that cubism embodies. So historically, industrialization, we had kind of mass production, all kinds of inventions. You know, you got your planes, your trains, your automobiles, people are moving, people are making stuff happen. (laughs) Great movie, by the way. (laughs) And what happened as a result of industrialization was backlash. So like, hold on a second, a response to this like rational enlightenment thinking. And this resulted in a lot of avant-garde ideas and consequently 
avant-garde art that tried to mess with the way you think about things and tried to look at things from a new perspective. Like I said, rejection of tradition. In terms of Cubism specifically, I think like the most interesting thing that I found, Mark Antliff in his book, Cubism and Culture, which is really good. And I like devoured like the first half of it. So Mark what? Antliff. A-N-T-L-I-F-F. Yeah, maybe it's Antliff. Maybe. I don't know. But... Cubism culture, check it out if this interests you. But early on in the in the book, he is talking about industrialization and he credits the discovery of x-rays in 1895 as a influential precursor to cubism because essentially it's like this visual example of bringing to the surface realities that are invisible to the eye. Oh, Dude, shit. Didn't we talk about right? this in, in regard to Duchamp? We might this, have. I think this came up at some point. Oh, we absolutely the talked about. The x-ray had a huge impact. We absolutely impact. talked about that. So a um, little background. Last fall, we took a seminar on Marcel Duchamp, who really deserves an episode all of his He'll own. He'll get one. He'll get one. He'll get sure. one. He'll get one. So all of the um, sort of interesting movements, if you will, of the early 20th century. And I think we're hugely influenced by scientific discoveries and and whatnot. So yeah, x-rays made a big impact. I just like that because not only do x-rays embody this progress, the scientific progress and industrialization, but it's like a very specific visual example. Like you look at an Mm x-ray and you see things that were previously unseen, Mm -hmm. which is just like a dope idea. That's kind of how Cubism came to be. It it really got its foothold in 1906, 1907, so first decade of the 1900s. And there are two different types of Cubism, which I think Natalie's going to... Yeah. Talk about. So just to start some root word. I don't even know where it's going. <laughs> Cubism got its name. There we go. It's a much better start. The root word. I just like the way you Fuck. said it. It's root. not like a dictionary. Anyway. <laughs> so uh, here, I'm about to sound dumb again. Louis Vosselle. Wasn't dumb at all. It's you beautiful. sound smart. I, I can't do French yet. You're so smart, Natalie. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Words of affirmation. <laughs> so he described one of the originators of the Cubist movement. Movement. So George George Brock. Okay. So Brock. I'm gonna call him Brock because George is hard for me to say. Like the president? Um, but no. I, but he's not French. Brock. Yeah, get I thought you were talking about George Bush. Oh my god, this is going <laughs> in a way different direction. Wow, though. George. Okay. Uh, wow, guys, I'm so sorry. Do you want to hear? We a, might have to cut this all out. It's okay. Do you want to hear a fun anecdote about yeah, George Bush we'll while we're at it? it? Yeah, let's just do it. I found there's a Wikipedia page about it. Apparently, George 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 Bush George W. Bush. Um, he likes to give people nicknames. Oh, like God. that's like a thing he does. And there's a Wikipedia page of all the nicknames he gave to like his cabinet. What? And like speaking of Barack Obama, he called Barack Obama like what do you call him? The Rock and Sure and Obama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like and there's this whole list on Wikipedia totally. of the goofy ass nicknames he gave to like legitimate officials in our government. That, that makes uh, me like him more. Not not my president. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Okay, anyway, back now to he Cubism. Just paints dogs. <laughs> which which yeah. we intend to have an episode about. We will have an episode oh, God. where we discuss the really, <laughs> oh, really oh, God. ridiculous paintings of George W. Bush. No. <laughs> Jen will not be there, but she will be there in spirit. Why? <laughs> but, anyways, Cubism. Right. So Brock had Jen, an exhibition. Open a new bottle. Please, please. Um, I'm way ahead of you. In 1909, I believe that it was. Might have been 08. But Louis Vosselis came to the show and he described the paintings as reducing everything to geometric outlines or to cubes. Mm. So cubes, cubism. That's where the name comes from. When you're getting into types of cubism, it's generally broken down into two periods. The first being analytical cubism, the second being synthetic cubism. So analytical cubism is generally thought to be from like 1908 to 1912, relatively. It deals a lot with fragmenting the appearance of objects. So you're seeing the same object from multiple viewpoints and you're getting a lot of like overlapping planes. And the idea of taking something that before the three-dimensionality would have been kind of emphasized through showing depth 
And now instead you're keeping the two dimensionality of planes, but just making all of them at once. Does that make any sense? Yeah. <laughs> it does yes. make sense. These are it's kind nice. of complicated ideas to explain like verbally, yeah. but we will obviously have, as we always do, we'll have images. And I think once like- We'll draw we... you a picture. <laughs> but honestly too, the theory of cubism, I think makes oh, sense a little bit more than the visual to yeah. a lot of people. Because yeah. a lot of people don't understand cubism aesthetically right off the bat. Mm-hmm. So hopefully us talking about it helps. I Yeah, I definitely agree. Like if you've never seen a cubist work, Hopefully you'll listen to this and look at one and be like, oh, I get it. Because I think cubism, yeah, like you said, the image combined with the theory makes you like have the light bulb moment. Yeah, you know, that's true. And, you know, when we did the Yoko Ono episode, I had a few people listen to it and be like, wow, you know, I always just thought she was like a homewrecker. And people that don't get Yoko Ono. And what's interesting is I think that a lot of art really does need to be like explained, which kind of yeah. You know, it's a lot of twenty. A bummer, you know. It's not a bummer art. though, because that means we have a job. Yeah, <laughs> that's our job. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, so. Oh my god. <laughs> you just realized it. It's like I just realized that I have a future a in art history. <laughs> Good lord. So back to analytical, just a little more (laughs) bullet point stuff. So more muted tones. They started out with a lot of blacks, grays, okras, and not a lot of tonal variation. So you're not going to see a ton of contrast between tones. And then from 1912 to about 1914, you get synthetic cubism, which actually becomes a little bit more about simple shapes and bright colors. So where analytical was kind of taking a single object and breaking it down into all these little fragmented pieces of the same object, synthetic is also more about simplifying objects. So they could be shapes that come from your imagination or the artist's imagination, but they're still very abstract and you're getting more color and you're also getting the inclusion of collage. So that you get newspaper collage, you get patterns, and you start to get textures. And that's a very short time period between the two. It's 08 to 14. So cubism, like I said, kind of started to develop 06, 07. And it mostly grew out of France. There were two cubist groups. The first one was Pablo Picasso who very well might be like the most well-known artist of all time. Like when you talk to people who don't, when you ask a person off the street, like name an artist, they're likely going to say Pablo Picasso. Like that's just the truth. Yeah, right. And with Picasso, he's really the face that you think of when you think of cubism. Yeah, definitely. He's the face of cubism and he's a very important player. And he's Um, an important face. Yeah, he's a very important (laughs) face. But yeah, so the first group, Pablo Picasso, Georges Braque, and kind of the rest of their crew out of Montmartre. And then the second group was Duchamp and his bros. And it was like literally his brothers. And they were in, was it Puto? So like a baby angel, Puto? <laughs> a singular. <laughs> it's actually spelled P-U-T-E-A-U-X. Uh, no, French. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's Duchamp and his brothers, Jacques Villon and Raymond Duchamp Villon. And essentially, they would get together with poets and philosophers and like hang out in coffee shops. And it was very like straight out of a Woody Allen movie. Like it was just like super romantic and great. They, um, yeah, they had a they had a good ass time out there. They did. Uh, you know what? Just no, no. This was like the Jen popped in a few times. No. I was there. It was like, yo, this is lit. Um, no, no, but um, you know, little quick side note. Um, Diego Rivera was hanging mm. out with the circle. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So you guys probably don't know, but um, I'm a big fan. I think they do. Do they know? Do you I guys, don't know. Do you guys know? Yeah, that's like where my research is kind of focused and Diego Rivera I love that fat piece of shit um, he he actually got really really lucky and left Mexico right around the time Mexico was fighting the Revolutionary War in 1910 and he Mm -hmm. went 
over to Europe for 10 years. He married a beautiful Russian woman who was 10 years his senior and treated her very badly and lived in France and associated with Picasso and was a Cubist painter before he went back to Mexico and painted all the great murals. That's for a different episode. Just yeah. a little anecdote, a little Also, note. we will have a Diego Rivera episode yeah. 100%. Yeah. So we'll get more into him at a different time. But yeah, it, it definitely is important to recognize that he worked in Cubist circles as well. So we have the two French Cubist groups that kind of got it going. And then... Pretty much like all things avant-garde, there was like a backlash, like immediately, like there was misunderstanding. People criticized it. They didn't understand what it was. Like, oh my God, what is happening? What are all these cues? That is essentially what it was. What are these cubes? I'm gonna I'm gonna read you an actual like written critique. Um, um, But Jen sums it up very nicely. So in, was it 1908, Gillette Burgess, who's an American writer, he visited Paris and he saw a lot of these Cubist works from these Parisian circles. And he wrote, was it The Wild Men of Paris? Wild Men. (laughs) Um, But this is just a little passage from one of the things he wrote as a response to Cubism. Had they attempted to invent a new form of humor? Were they merely practical jokers? Or must we seriously attempt anew to solve the old question, what is art? It was a... God damn it. (laughs) That question haunts me. (laughs) It was an affording quest, analyzing such madness as this. I had studied the gargoyles of Oxford and Notre Dame... What is... Notre Dame. I had making gargoyles. (laughs) (laughs) We're having a hard time keeping it together tonight, you guys. This is really too much. I had mused over the art of Niger and of Dahomey. Dahomey. I had. Okay, I had gazed. I'm just trying to get through this passage right now. No, I'm sorry. Just keep going. I had gazed at Hindu monstrosities, Aztec mysteries, and many other primitive grotesques. Jeez. And it had come over me that there was a rationale of ugliness as there was a rationale of beauty. That perhaps one was but the negative of the other. An image reversed, which might have its own value and esoteric meaning. Men had painted and carved grim and obscene things when the world was young. Was this revival a sign of some second childhood of the race or a true rebirth of art? Gillette! <laughs> so that's like kind of super pretentious and ridiculous, oh, especially yeah, when he talks God. about. People hate us. Yeah, especially when he talks about the gargoyles, like so unnecessary. Honestly, but, dude, he, but, just, he just wanted to say esoteric. Yeah, he did. He, did. <laughs> he um, wrote esoteric and then he wrote esoteric. <laughs> that being said, I do think he ends it on. An important note. Yeah, like the last, last sentence. He kind of redeems it. Kind of ended on this idea. Was this revival a sign of some second childhood of the race or a true rebirth of art? Which is a very central idea to Cubism, which brings me to my main discussion, which is about the word primitivism. <laughs> and just, <laughs> I need to say Can't even say it. Brain. It's so Before we like, Corey get to primitivism. Prim- it's so a pr- a pr- primitivism. primitivism. Yes. Primitivism. Primitivism. Really quickly. Primitivism. <laughs> <laughs> the reason that people freaked out so badly is this was like the first main rejection of perspective since like the Renaissance. So pretty much as yes. soon as people discovered perspective and the mm-hmm. idea that you can use perspective to create illusions to make things look quote unquote real... People were obsessed. So this was the first time that people were like, no, we're going to go against that and just go in a completely different direction. They said, no. (laughs) That's what they said. (laughs) And that's like a great point to make to kind of jump into this primitivism conversation. Imagine every time from here on out when I say the word primitivism, (laughs) imagine that I'm like using air quotes. Because it's like a really problematic word, and you're going to understand why very soon. So, as Natalie just described, in terms of aesthetics, primitivism is usually referring to an abandonment of perspective, which is like a big deal in and of itself. In like Eurocentric art world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is still a thing. Yeah, Yeah, It's still the art world for the most part. Yeah, so in terms of talking about aesthetics, visual art, 
European art, abandonment of perspective is a big deal. And it was abandoning this perspective in favor of a flat, two-dimensional picture plane. So oftentimes involved a simplification of form. So it's like more basic two-dimensional forms working together to kind of create, as Jen will talk about later, a fourth dimension or multiple like visions of the same object. But theoretically speaking, a larger, more culturally relevant scale, the primitive is considered the opposite of the civilized. So you have civilization and then you have primitivism, which is problematic right off the bat, especially when we're at a time when industrialization and civilization is everything. This gets even more murky when we add in the fact that this primitive style stems from African and oceanic influence. So specifically art, different masks and sculptures that came from the French Congo. These French circles of cubists had access to these. Picasso first, I think, saw one in 1906 and it influenced his work. And then he started his own collection. So you're taking these forms, these artistic ideas from a French colony and using them for European artistic purposes. Still problematic. So... (laughs) So this kind of like highlights the issues of primitivism. One of the most essential cubist works, one of the most well-known Picassos is Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. Oh, good pronunciation. Thanks. Fantastic. I appreciate that. I've taken one French class, so I'm working on it. (laughs) That was great. Thank you, dear. Um, But he painted this in 1907. Very important painting. Visually, when you look at it, you have this flattening of the picture plane that we talked about, as well as obvious and very intentional reproduction of these African masks that Picasso had been influenced by. We can call it appropriation. Yeah, Yeah. I was going to bring that word up a little later, but yeah, it's cultural appropriation. If you know anything about cultural appropriation, it plays into a hierarchy. Very similarly, primitivism automatically sets up a hierarchy. Using that word automatically sets up a hierarchy and if you have like if you're like young art historian out there listening to this and you have like a professor that uses the term primitivism and doesn't address how problematic it is you need to like mention it because that is like my biggest pet peeve question authority (laughs) um because it's a very problematic term Honestly, I think it should only be used when discussing how problematic it is. I yeah, I think yeah. that's Yeah, it seems really bizarre to me that primitivism is a term that still exists as like, Exactly. If, if primitivism is being explained as some sort of legitimate label on anything without any regard to how problematic or whatever other synonym fits. Um, <laughs> we like we like the word problematic. We really do. Um, but as know, most millennials do, we do. God, but yeah, if, if if you're hearing about primitivism or you're learning about it without any sort of regard to how much of a problem it is to use that term in regard to anything really, then that's uh, that's problematic. <laughs> Yeah, so it automatically sets up a hierarchy, this notion of Western progress versus primitive regression. And what makes it even more problematic is the idea that in Western art, if you use the word primitivism, it can be a positive thing. If you're talking about Pablo Picasso and you use the word primitivism, it can describe a certain intellectual kind of like a certain intellectual idea. It's like Oh, he's using that intentionally. It's intellectual. It's like like intellectual and historical. In yeah, a way, right? yeah. It should be something that notion that came with primitivism should be left where it was born. So, if you're talking about it in that context, it has unfortunately oftentimes had this positive connotation. But if you talk about it in regards to art outside of Europe, if you're looking at an African mask and you describe it as primitive, it is negative. Hashtag colonialism. That's how that works. <laughs> so recognize it. Keep it in mind. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it, but it makes sense that in the early 20th century, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the, these artists are seeing work from Africa or even, you know, artists in like Central America or they're seeing artifacts from their own past mm-hmm. and these things are very influential and so there's a degree of like okay how much do 
we give them leeway as far as being inspired by these objects that they have never seen before. Is ignorance bliss? Do they get a break or are they being horrible racist? That's a great point to make because I personally love Pablo Picasso. I love his work. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. he's quotable as fuck. I think he's like, wonderful. <laughs> he's wonderful. I think he's really great. And yeah, you do have to take things in the context of which they are born. Like 1907 was a very different time. It so, was a hundred years ago. Yeah. So we can't look at Picasso and be like, what a racist son of a bitch. Like, I don't think that's the way to go about it. But it is important to recognize how now when we know more. We do better, right? I appreciate him. I think that Guernica oh, is one of my favorite paintings. It's so good. Ever. So Guernica could also be titled Allegory of a Failed Relationship. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, this, this will be a whole episode. We're going to do a whole episode at I'm some point on paintings that elucidate our terrible breakups Dude. in one way or another. <laughs> oh, and um, I'm all about that episode. Mine's going to be um, a Rothko. <laughs> oh my god that's perfect that's perfect that is perfect <laughs> I don't even know what mine would be oh like god. Christina's World by one just like gazing out on the plains <laughs> alright right, guys we're not giving any more away this is gonna be a whole episode <laughs> Judith beheading Hall of Fairness. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> These are so good. Okay, so um look forward to that episode. That'll be a really good um, one. Yeah, back to primitivism. Important notion to keep in mind. Also, it's not a reason to throw away everything Cubist did. Um, and that kind of brings me to the next idea is that in a more positive sense, Cubism was an attempt to balance what was going on with industrialization. Like, so society is so focused on production, industrialization, progress, and Cubism, honestly, a lot of the Cubists, they embodied a lot of socialist ideals. They embodied somewhat anti-colonial ideals, at least as much as you can have in 1907. Right. So they were coming at it from a place of like, let's stand up against, you know, what's going on. So it was an avant-garde, like, response, an anarchist response in some ways, to respond to industrialization. So that's like a very positive thing. Not without its problems. I think it was a response in the right direction, trying to kind of balance things out and say, hey, this is our culture that we consider to be, you know, Western and civilized. But what can we learn from these other cultures that are the same as us? Which is a, such an important idea. So Yeah, so, even if it is problematic. Yeah, it's like, yeah. It's interesting that they even wanted to go there yeah exactly exactly so question it be critical but with les demoiselles de Avignon. Oh, so <laughs> say it again good. say it again say it again <laughs> damn it why did i sign up for german i'll be yelling at you guys as soon as the next quarter starts because yeah, i'm gonna know dude. german well we're definitely gonna do german expression i know and that's why i'll be yelling at them in okay german. yeah um that's the only oh, way to speak girl. german yeah i mean it's really it's really the main no. reason i i took french it's because it's sexy. How you say, ooh. <laughs> ooh how you say. <laughs> how you say. Um, That's okay. like Borat, stop it. Okay. <laughs> in, talking about, in talking about this painting, we have to talk about it. Obviously, because we're the art history babes, we have to talk about it from a feminist angle. We're going to let Jen say her tagline. My knee tagline? Oh, it was, men, please consider this. <laughs> That's, I think that's an art history babes tagline now. Men, please consider this. <laughs> okay, so, Les Demoiselles de Avignon, the, mm. the, <laughs> the ladies in this painting, which it's made up entirely of ladies, have commonly been understood to represent prostitutes, which is not a first in art history. That's something that a lot of artists like to do. It's, it's as old as time. It is. Yeah. The odalisque, they like oh to uh, represent prostitutes. In a very artsy and, I don't know, intellectual way. Because they're dope. Yeah. The world's oldest profession. Yeah. Prostitution. So, these ladies are prostitutes. Now, where it gets kind of, like, once again, problematic. And 
before I get into this, chances are Pablo Picasso was 100% aware of this. Like, it's most likely that this was intentional. So he kind of intentionally attributes what at the time were considered to be African physiognomic traits, which we all know physiog uh, physiognomy? Physio physiognomy. Physiognomy is not cool, but mm -hmm. at the time it was a real science. And so it intentionally attributes these traits to European models. And in this case, there are a couple of them in the image where he actually uses those African masks. So there's this very intentional, like, mixing Should of we... European bodies and, like, African, air quotes, African attributes. And Antliff, who wrote Cubism and Culture, I think says it very well. He basically defines it as the European prostitute as regression to the condition of the sexualized African female, Ugh. which is degradation of women on every possible mm. level. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> also, this, this heavily plays into, and I mean, we're talking early 20th century here, but like the 19th century notion of over-sexualizing yes. women, especially in colonial territories. Especially black women. Yeah, yeah completely. Exactly. Anywhere Racist, that was colonized, oh, yeah. especially African women, were over-sexualized. Hashtag Gauguin. Oh, oh God. <laughs> this will be a whole other tangent, a whole other episode. We're, we're going to have an entire episode just bashing that motherfucker. Yeah. But anyway. But, yeah, so there's a long history of that. So this is trickling yeah. over of that idea. Exactly. So the African female is already sexualized. And that's essentially what Antliff is saying. African female, already sexualized. And in this image, painted by Paulo Picasso, you have a European prostitute that is, the best word for it, regression, is regressing, quote, quote, air quotes, so many air quotes in this episode, into the condition of this sexualized African female that's already overly sexualized. Antliff also mentions this, and I totally agree with him. It was most likely a very intentional thing by Picasso, and he was probably trying to bring attention to this in, like, a subversive way. Picasso's trying to subvert these notions, these colonial notions. So once again, we, in an intellectual sense, we have good intentions. But Antliff also suggests, and I agree with this, and I think it's an important note to end on, because we're doing this back and forth with Pablo Picasso, that Picasso's use of primitivism, the way he used primitivism to serve his intellectual ideas, could be seen as like a power play. You know, he is a European male, so it's kind of this like placing himself once again, back on the hierarchy. Yeah. So it's this back and forth. Do we all agree we all really love Picasso? Is anyone yeah. anti-Picasso? I, I love him. I respect Picasso immensely. Honestly, I love Picasso as a person. Yeah, he was yeah. A, he was a very passionate man. Mm -hmm. He had many ill-advised affairs. Mm -hmm. He He's just a man driven by his passions. And honestly, I just love that. I yeah, think that, that no, is he, just so awesome. And that's what it just means to be like a human. And what's the... What's, <laughs> I totally agree. What's, I know it sounds like silly, but no, it, really. Yeah, no. I Like I said, he's super quotable. Like, what's the one quote where he's like, it took me four years to paint like Raphael, but a lifetime to paint like a child? Yeah. I love that shit. Top three most quotable artists oh, ever. I would have I would have been one of his muses. Yeah. <laughs> I, if, if that would have ever happened. I thought you were. Oh, I thought oh. you were. Oh, Nat. But yeah, so his daughter Paloma's dope. dope. Paloma? He named his daughter Paloma? Yes. Oh, that makes so me love him so, so much more. That means, that means little dog. Typically, she only wears the colors red. Black and white. It's wow, also, cool! <laughs> it's also one of my favorite cocktails. Yeah, Salamas so. are very good. We're gonna take a break and come back and talk about the fourth dimension. Oh. Do, do, do. No. Welcome back. We are talking about cubism. Just finished up a discussion on primitivism and how it relates to cubism. Now I'm gonna pass it over to Jen, and she's gonna talk about some time and space and fourth dimension stuff. Ooh. <laughs> it's gonna get trippy. Okay, it's not gonna get that trippy. 
honestly, because I'm not a professional and I don't know a whole lot about the fourth dimension. But what's really interesting. Uh, hold on. Does anyone know a whole yeah. lot, about the, a lot about the fourth dimension? Um, I have you a certificate do write to us. in the fourth dimension. Did you so. get your certificate in the fourth dimension? <laughs> you know what? Because I didn't. And somehow I'm talking about it. And I wish that I would have bothered to get my certificate but i think anything involving the fourth dimension is all speculation so say what you gotta say i love Corey so much um <laughs> so what is at the heart of this conversation is that in the very early 20th century artists writers scientists physicists astronomers, astronomers <laughs> Oh my god. Can you cut that out? No, it's so great. I hate this. Um, Astronomous. Okay. So, in the early 20th century, suddenly everyone's really fascinated about the fourth dimension. And so, just super basic. I'm not going to explain the fourth dimension. It's just no one knows what it is or how. <laughs> no one. Nobody knows. We don't even have know if guys, it's real. Have you guys watched Stranger Things? I haven't seen it yet. Oh, you guys, have to. To. You guys, you have, guys have, have to. You guys have to. It's so good. So we could refer to the fourth oh, dimension man. as the upside down. I feel like that's fair. Oh, that's pretty good because you know what? Okay, so in 1827, the scientist who is known as Mobius. Uh, Mobius. No, I'm not making that up. Okay. Uh, August Fernand Mobius. Oh my god. All right. You know, you guys can get out of my face. I don't know how to pronounce his name. You were laughing at Mobius. August Fernand Mobius. So, Mr. Mobius in 1827 realized that a fourth dimension would allow a three-dimensional form to be rotated onto its mirror image. So that was kind of trippy. And everyone's wondering, what does that mean? And at some point, the fourth dimension comes to encompass the idea of space and time. So we can think of the fourth dimension as time. And that is a very rough definition of the fourth dimension okay because you can't just call it time it's it's not just time it's space time and don't ask me what space time is i don't know okay i don't know what space time is i'm not a goddamn physicist okay so you just have to take my word for it what's the matthew mcconaughey movie oh yes what the hell was that movie god damn it someone I saw it. I saw it. It was uh, a... It deals with the fourth dimension, and that's, like, how he fucking fixes the whole movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Matthew McConaughey... What movie is this? Oh, it was a great movie. It was that big space movie he did where he's an astronaut. Oh, fucking, um... It was called Interstellar. Interstellar. Okay, so in Interstellar, Matthew McConaughey has to save the world, and he needs to bend space-time to go back in time before everything got fucked up, and he saves the world, and I just spoiled the movie for all of you, but it's a really good movie, and you should watch it. But that is essentially where I'm going with this. That's the best way to explain the fourth dimension, as far as I know it. Thank you so much. The fourth dimension is space time. And so taking it back to the world of art history, when we think of cubism, when we think of what these artists were interested in at the time, the fourth dimension is huge. And it's huge because it was newly discovered. Still to this day, we can't confirm by, you know, hard facts that the fourth dimension is even a real thing. But in, Especially not as art historians. Not as art historians. We, we're not going to be able to give you the, the facts about that. Sorry. But it's something that ends up happening in the art world is that artists who are usually intellectuals are very interested in what's going on at the time. And so the idea of a fourth dimension it was highly inspiring, influential. And so these artists suddenly were interested in how do we depict a fourth dimensional form. Four dimensions meaning encompassing the aspect of time. 
So that is where things start to become very theoretical. And that is where artists such as Marcel Duchamp become highly relevant. So Marcel Duchamp, wonderful French artist, he's very interesting. We know him, he's very popular for his fountain, but what he's also famous for was his painting called New Descending a Staircase Number Two. So Marcel Duchamp painted New Descending a Staircase Number Two and Which kind <clears throat> of has a lot of similarities with the Demoiselle d'Avignon. You have Cubist techniques that are kind of mm-hmm. similar, and they're both <clears throat> deal with nudes. They're both dealing with nudes. What sets Duchamp's painting apart from Picasso's is the fact that Duchamp was highly interested in the fourth dimension, and this painting exhibits his interest in the sense that he tried to depict on a two-dimensional plane the act of a nude descending a staircase. So what we're seeing is the attempt of capturing that moment in time of a figure moving down a staircase. And that's really what's at the heart of Cubism at this time. So in 1912, Marcel Duchamp exhibited this work in the Salon des Independents. That is the first time that he exhibited this work, and it was met by fierce criticism. It was rejected. Marcel Duchamp actually had a huge falling out with his brothers. (gasps) Oh, his brothers. He was really hurt by this. His brothers (laughs) were also artists. And when Duchamp exhibited this work at the salon, there were people that asked his brothers Jacques Villon and Raymond Duchamp Villon. And Duchamp's brothers were asked by other people to tell Duchamp to withdraw the painting voluntarily or to paint over the title and rename it something else. So the fact that it was called New Descending a Staircase was just so disconcerting to these people and they wanted him to change something about it. And it just became a huge problem. Duchamp had a very stressed relationship with his brothers after that. And there was a lot of controversy about this work because even in the realm of Cubist artists, nobody at the time had tried to paint the physical act of movement in a Cubist painting. And that's what Duchamp attempted to recreate. And I believe that he did it pretty successfully, actually. I get the sense of a body moving through space. And that's what's at the heart of the fourth dimension, is the idea of space-time being inextricable. Yeah, no, I I mean, I agree. I definitely get this feeling of a body moving through space, but in a disorienting sense. It doesn't quite represent a fourth dimension, but I feel like it reaches out into another dimension. Does that make Mm. sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there was a lot of other sort of strange influences in the way that this painting was received. So according to Duchamp, there were other cubists, like the artist Albert Gle. That was great. Anyway, so Albert believed that the nude wasn't quite in line with what the Cubist artist had already investigated. So basically, a big backlash against it was, hey, we already decided how we were going to show nude women, and you're messing it up. <laughs> Hanging the work objected to his painting because they thought that the title was too literary. Mm. And they said that one does not paint a nude descending a staircase. That's ridiculous. A nude should be respected. So I don't know what that means. I, I think that nudes shouldn't be going down staircases according to this. Like they should just be They should up. just be lying down. Nudes shouldn't be moving down staircases, according to the people. (laughs) The people. The people. Um, Another... I'm going to walk down all the staircases, dude. I'm about to. I'm going to do it right now. (laughs) I don't have stairs in my house, but I'll figure it out. (laughs) 
Um, another find some, and we're gonna walk in naked. One more thing. So another criticism came from those who believed that the new Decennia staircase was too close to the influences of Italian futurism, and that is essentially all there really is to say about the fourth dimension. As far as an art historian goes, I'm not going to go any deeper into this wormhole. Haha, <laughs> wormholes, because fourth dimension has to do with time, <laughs> and we don't know if there's wormholes. We don't know if you can go back in time. I want to believe, but as of right now, I don't know if it's true. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to leave it at that and where are we you guys <laughs> end of the episode we got some listener mail yeah. yeah yeah we do so cubism's gonna be a two-parter Ooh. we got a lot to say about cubism yeah thank you jen for going into the fourth dimension for us for a second oh, thanks babe we are going to do some listener mail real quick so jenny what do you got for us oh boy <laughs> <laughs> listener mail Yes, we love it. I read it, I read it, and then I will share it with my mom just so she knows how loved the art history babes and by extension, I am. We we really do appreciate all of these. They're so so nice and send more. Oh, we love I, every single one of them. Words of affirmation. We like read them to each other and cheese out. It's great. Oh, it's so fucking great. Okay, so this one comes from Jose. Oh, Jose, this is great. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it seems like a lot of you guys have found us just like really randomly, which is great, which is great. So Jose says, hello, just found out about your podcast and wanted to say I really enjoyed your talk on Artemisia Gentileschi. As a lover of all things art and art history, I'm disappointed to say that I was unaware of her life. Many are, Jose. That's really fair. I'm disappointed. Oh, God damn it. Sorry, Jose. <laughs> um, <laughs> I knew she came from a family of painters, but that was it. So thanks for the lesson. It definitely provided me with a fresh perspective of her work. Keep up the great work, babes. I actually stumbled upon your pod by a random art history search. New listener, Jose. Yes, do a brutalist architecture podcast. Well, Jose, your dream and my dream has come true. Congratulations. (laughs) Our next full episode is going to be on architecture, and it's going to be fucking dope. And it's going to be brutal. (laughs) (laughs) Slash brutal. (laughs) So, thank you for your email. Again, we so, so, so appreciate it. We love you. We really do love all of you. Yeah, so our next episode after Cubism Part 2, because this is a two-parter. Our next episode after that is going to be, I think we're going to do like architecture and power. But thank you so much for everyone who's written in. Thank you so much for everyone who's written anything nice about us on anywhere. Oh my god, it's been yes. so great. Send us emails, um, send us Snapchats, send us We're Instagram not on Snapchat. Well, you know what? We'll get there. Just send it. But we are on Instagram as Art History Babes Podcast. We are on Twitter at Art History Babes. Our email is arthistorybabes at gmail.com. Our website is arthistorybabes.com. Also, If you are enjoying this and you like what we're doing, the best thing you can do to help us out right now is go into iTunes and write us a review. Get some thoughts rolling in our reviews. That's how we get kind of noticed in the podcast world, apparently. We're just learning this. (laughs) But So if you have a a few extra minutes, just write us a quick review. We super appreciate it. We appreciate every single one of you listeners. You're all amazing. You're all great. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for Cubism Part 2. We'll catch you later. Bye, babes. Bye. Nudes shouldn't be moving down staircases, according to the people. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.